The fool says in his heart, there's no God. But who's the fool? I was talking to my two boys about this uh, verse this week. Uh, we're doing our little Bible times over breakfast. And the immediate question they had was, Daddy, who's the fool? Who's the fool? And the problem with a term like fool is that we receive it through the culture in which we live, don't we? Uh, so we understand fool in its, its vernacular, which is like any word, its popular usage. So firstly, I went about trying to describe to the boys um, a, a few ways in which someone could be a fool in our culture. So they understand they'd never heard the word before. Eventually, after a few clumsy descriptions, one of the boys said to me, um, so a fool, Daddy, is a bit like Mr. Silly, isn't it? Okay, we've been reading this wonderful uh, children's classic, which many of you, um, I'm sure, have read. Let me just give you a bit of an example of Mr. Silly. Um, This is over breakfast. He was having a cup of coffee, which he put a spoonful of marmalade into. After that, he had a cornflake sandwich. And to finish, he had a boiled egg. But being Mr. Silly, he ate the shell as well. Isn't that a silly breakfast? Absolutely. A fool is someone who does things that it just makes others laugh, isn't it? I mean, historically, it's been the kind of court jester, very popular today as a stand-up comedian. The odd, the odd one, the silly one. But it, it's more than that, isn't it? In our culture, the fool is also the person who is quite easily duped, uh, the one who is easily led astray, the muddled one, as one of my other boys mentioned. I'm not going to read any of that to you, but there we go. Mr. Muddle is a very obvious candidate in that understanding of fool. Uh, See, the fool can be the humorous one. It can be the simple, muddled one. But you can also be a fool, can't you, for something. You can be utterly devoted to something, like tickling, as in Mr. Tickle. So, I'm, I'm going to stop there, it's too, too big. You see, you can be foolish in a number of ways. But that is how culture, isn't it, determines a fool. Uh, look at what, what about God, though? Here in verse 1, God uh, says... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Let me put that another way for you. Uh, If you are an atheist, God in his word describes you as a fool. I I just want to park that foolish stuff for a moment and just turn to atheism. We'll try and bring the two together in a moment. Uh, Atheism is a denial of God. Hence why it is true to say of an atheist, in their heart they say there is no God. They would agree with that. There are of course different types of atheists, aren't there? You will have met them, I'm sure. There's the very outspoken, aggressive atheists who who stand against any belief uh, in God whatsoever. They argue that God has no part to play in this world and they believe that um, anything of God, of now and of future, is just a fabricated crutch for the weak-minded. These atheists are known as aggressive atheists. The common title is now neo-atheists. I'm sure you've heard of Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, very popular book. Probably um, more dangerous is uh, Christopher Hitchens, who's quite an outstanding orator. But he also wrote God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now these men seek to undermine at every occasion and break down faith in God. They believe it to be a virus. Dawkins even wrote, it's a danger to society. Now these atheist great orators are powerful men 
And I have to admit, they are supremely intelligent men. Now, one could actually argue that they are gifted men. There is an atheist, they could never take that. And they debate with such skill and ferocity that, that few ever dare to challenge them. Now, Hitchens, interestingly, once said at the beginning of a date at Oxford, um, uh, where he studied and later lectured, he quoted from one of his books, standing up in a debate, he said this, I don't expect anyone to come and contradict me. Isn't that a debate? And he argued there that Christians need to be eliminated from society, was his, was his words. Now, thankfully, their method is debate, not bombs. But it, it, it turns out more like haranguing is their method. But so persuaded, so aggressive, so intimidating, so able, so actually exciting to listen to, can they really be understood by God as fools? The neo-atheists, well, there aren't actually that many around. They're very vocal though, aren't they? Dawkins, interestingly, began a summer camp, I don't know if you heard about that, a few years ago. Pretty much modelled on many of the Christian camps that many of us have been involved in and now lead on. And uh, I tried to work out, I think there were probably over 100,000 young Christians on summer camps last year. There were 24 on Dawkins' atheist summer camp. Uh, By that I'm saying, there aren't that many around, but they are very loud. But there are a number, a great number, of passive or assuming atheists, as they're sometimes called. Assuming atheists, basically, because they won't argue the fact. They just assume there isn't a God, because mum told them a few decades back. Um, They will say to you, quite nonchalantly, if God exists, well, he's got nothing to do with me. Now, these kind of people are all around us, aren't they? You work with them, you live with them, I guess. And they, they call themselves agnostics some of the time, which basically means, in the original terms, they're, they're ignorant ones. But they're really saying the same thing as a passive atheist. So they say something like, yeah, God, if you, if you do exist, and I don't think you do, thank you very much, I'm not prepared to engage my mind thinking about God, and therefore you have nothing to do with my life. Now, you see, two two sets of atheists. I mean, the aggressive ones can be very logical in their arguments, very persuasive. Uh, and the, uh, the, the passive atheist can sound so happy, so content, so secure in their position of ignorance. And it can make Christians feel, those who want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it can make us feel sometimes rather silly and stupid and uneducated in front of that bunch of people, but also just a little discontent in comparison to others. Therefore, if you're a Christian, you know that sometimes, in conversation with your friends, if they're atheists, that you can feel a little bit on the back foot. It's interesting here in verse 1 that God is certainly not that, is he? He's very much on the front foot. He's saying that any form of atheism, whether passive or aggressive, it doesn't matter what, is, is a supreme act of foolishness, he's saying. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. If you're an atheist, you are a fool, God says. And that seems wrong, doesn't it? I mean, Dr. Hitchens and Dr. Um, Dawkins seem far too... I'm going to stop here, but they seem far too like Mr. Clever. I'm not going to read any of that book whatsoever. 
But for those kind of guys to be smeared with the label fool seems insulting, doesn't it? Now, let me just introduce you to Mr. Clever. Mr. Clever was the cleverest man in the world and lived in Cleverland and he built a clever house and uh, he had a clever alarm clock and a clever toaster which put butter and marmalade on your toast automatically. But was he a fool? Uh, the interesting thing is, he could be. And so could Dawkins and so could Hitchens. You see, the opposite of a fool here is not from what we understand in our culture around us. The opposite of a fool, biblically, is not being Mr. Clever, Mr. Intelligent um, Neo-Atheist. See, the opposite of being a fool is not intelligent. Rather, the opposite of being a fool in the Bible is being wise. And you see, wisdom in the Bible is all about understanding who God is and who we are in relation to God and in relation to each other. And from that understanding, living appropriately according to what we know of God, with having him as king of our lives, obeying his instructions in his word, the Bible. One of the books of wisdom in the Bible, probably one of the most famous books, is Proverbs. And it says right at the beginning of that, The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. See, see the wise person is the one, in God's perspective, who sees the reality of the world around them, who sees the magnitude of God over this world and understands who they truly are and who the world is and the people in the world, who they truly are. The fool, on the other hand, is the one that closes their eyes to that reality. Yes, they observe the order of this world and the universe around them. And they hypothesize to the nth degree to deny that God is creator and is the one who actually gives them the very breath they breathe to hypothesize. So being a fool in the Bible is not being silly. It is not being simple. It is not being devoted to something. Rather, the fool in the Bible is it, it's a moral category. It's doing something wrong before God. So in God's terms, you can be of supreme intelligence, yet be an utter fool before him. But you see, saying there is no God is, is well, it's, it's not the starting point for most people, is it? Usually most people today in this life live a life and then seek to justify that life in their own hearts and minds by just saying there is no God. And you see that link, don't you, between thinking and life here in verse 1. Look, look at it with me. The fool says in the heart there's no God. They are corrupt inside. Their deeds, their life, are vile. There is no one who does good. Now here, the link begins with the denial of God. But look what flows from that. That thinking leads to a corrupt heart. That word corrupt in the Hebrew there is, um, it basically means spoilt or ruined. Thinking of a, a kind of a ruined, left, derelict kind of building. Or some food left to kind of rot and stink. It's that kind of picture. The corruption of the heart leads to something getting worse, degrading, getting more smelly, if you like. 
more derelict. It leads to vile deeds, it says here. What was once a corruption inside will one day eke its way out into your life. And it will affect others because it says that no one does good. There's a kind of an effect outside as well. And I think we know what this looks like, don't we? Something began in your mind, perhaps many years ago. Just something small. A selfish thought, perhaps. A lustful ponder. A little bit of discontentedness about a particular area of your life. And we let our hearts, don't we, and our minds think it through. We internalise it. It begins to take up, though, more and more of our time and our energy. And as years pass, we can look back, can't we, to see how that momentary thought becomes a consideration, that becomes a decision, that becomes a way of thinking in our lives, that becomes, yes, it gets out. It's a one-off action that becomes then a lifestyle. A vile deed against God. Oh, it's not mentioned here, is it? But essentially what is being described is sin. Uh, For many it begins with denying God and it leads to that corrupt heart which flows out from it to a vile deed, a sinful action against God. But I think it's equally true today, as I mentioned, that many do what they want to without any consideration of God whatsoever and it's only afterwards that they seek to justify themselves saying there's no God because I I live like that. Now of course God did not create the world in this way and put us in this world with this kind of purpose but we do deny him and his rule in our lives and the whole plan of God as instigated creation is corrupted. And we probably know this better. I'm going to hopefully appeal to some of your Bible study over the previous years in Romans. I think many of you have done that. You'll know this from Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. The rebellion in in those verses begins again with the mind. The heart is darkened, Paul says to the Romans. And though claiming to be wise, God perceives them as fools. You know the verse well, I guess, many of you. Why? Well, it's that great exchange, isn't it? That they've exchanged the glory of God in their lives for seeking their own glory and pleasure. Now here is where the reality hits home. Let's just move on. For what we see in verses 2 and 3, I think it's the big shock of the passage. Look at it. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men, humanity, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And I think what we see is, coming to our, our first main point here, the world is turned against God. The world turned against God. So having described the denial of God, the corruption of the heart, and the deeds that follow, we now see who is included in that. And I think what we see is it includes you, and it includes me. For God looks down on the whole world, every person, whatever their status, whatever creed, colour, language, everyone throughout history, every person, no one is overlooked here. And what is God looking for? To see if there is anyone who understands, any single person who seeks God. He's looking for a single person here who is not a fool. Just someone who is vaguely going in the right direction. 
And verse 3 provides that haunting answer, doesn't it? All have turned aside. They've come together, uh, they've, uh, sorry, together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. God, see, looks down and his perspective from heaven is so much clearer than ours, isn't it? He can't find anyone who hasn't denied him or turned their back on him. Everyone has become corrupt in God's eyes. That's why, you know, the world has turned against God. And immediately, I guess, in our hearts, we want to challenge that, don't we? Because we know people and we see people doing good things. There's been lots of good recently in communities around all the street parties. There's been lots of good in our country, in all the royal wedding celebrations. But whereas we might view our lives and think we are okay, capable of doing a few wrong things, maybe, how does God view you and me? He just says, all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. And Jesus says the same, if we want to kind of squirm out of this passage, Jesus says the same in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 7, verse 11. He he simply assumes in that verse, look at it later if you want, he assumes all are evil, is his term. And so we say, this is the kind of thing that we all say, I'm a kind of nice person. British, middle class, you know, all that kind of thing. All those categories that we like to use and to make sure we're okay, rather charming, rather pleasant in society. So we say we're nice people, capable, yeah, we do a few wrong things, but not bad. But Jesus says we're evil. Maybe capable of doing a few good things. You see the difference? Jesus in Matthew 7 is speaking of parents giving gifts to children. So he's saying it's possible to be evil, corrupt, uh, capable of vile deeds, as we've seen in, in this psalm here. But in one sense, he's saying that it doesn't mean you're incapable of doing any good. It's simply stating the, the truth, if you like, the base of, of who you are in your heart. That you and I are instinctively seeking to serve ourselves and not the Lord God. We're not looking to glorify God. That is our corruption of what makes us evil in the sight of God. The world in its heart has turned against God. None truly seek him. And I suppose what this passage is here to do is to realign for us the reality that we are all in before God. And I have to say this to you. you know, If you are here today and you are so welcome. But if you are not a Christian, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, and this is true for you. Now, you may have been ignoring this truth, denying it, yeah? But God is the creator and sustainer of this world, and he's letting you know this truth right now, so that you might do something about it. This is not me standing in judgment over you as some arrogant fellow person. I'm no judge. But this should be a reality check for you, lovingly given before you meet the judge. If you are a Christian, the simple difference is that when you read these verses, verses 1 to 3, you've put your hands up and you've bowed your head low and in utter shame and embarrassment and that you have admitted before God that in your heart that you have turned away. 
Essentially, you were the fool and now you've been wise. Because you're the one who's trusted in the promises to save you from the consequences of your foolish denial of God. So you see, the Christian understands verse 1 to 3 because we see it in our hearts, but we turn from it, don't we? And we do that daily. It's what repentance is. It's a turning. And we don't want to identify with that way of living, that old life, or be associated with it. And if we're Christians, then, then we're not this anymore before God. But it's really helpful, isn't it, to remember what we once were. And that's what Paul does, doesn't he? Again and again. Ephesians 2 is helpful. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far away, he says. Yeah? Far away from God in our denial of him and his lordship in our lives. Have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. Well, the foolish world has turned away from God. And what it needs to do, and it may be you tonight, you need to admit that you've been a fool. And turn back to God and accept that that blood of Jesus given on the cross. This is simple, isn't it? Essentially what Jesus does is swap places for us. Those of us who are evil, corrupt, by nature. And he takes that punishment that we deserve for that corruptness on himself so that we might be forgiven and brought near. It's a simple swap. The world has turned against God and we need to admit that we've been fools. Now the following verses provide us with the inevitable consequence of denying God. The corrupt heart and the vile deed begin to make themselves apparent. Because what we see, and it's our second point, a much briefer point, the corrupt world against God's people, we see there. History does show us, doesn't it, again and again, and we'll see this next term as we look in at Revelation, um, that when people turn their backs on God, the first to suffer are God's children, that is Christians. We see it in India at the moment with the radical Hindus who are killing Christians again and again, knowing that the authorities will just turn a blind eye and they're doing it all the time. Do you know as a Christian dies every minute in India at the moment through persecution? It's all around the Islamic world and the press do not dare make it known or, probably more realistically, they don't want to make it known. It's all around um, the Islamic world, uh, the Far East, Northern Africa. It's pretty much everywhere. So we see two groups, if you look with me now, there, verse 4 to 6. The corrupt world and God's people. Uh, there's no qualitative kind of judgment made between the two groups. Because Christians aren't any better than anyone else. They've just simply trusted the better person namely Jesus Christ. There are warnings for one group, there's comfort for the other. And the song, and that's what Psalm 14 is, simply shows that what will come for each of these groups. And I have to ask the question, don't I? Because it's implicitly there in the text, which group are you in? Ask that as you go through these verses. Are you against God? Are you going to continually deny him and be described here as the one who is the evildoer, because your deeds are vile, from verse 1. Are you that group? Or are you one of God's people? They're the two groups. Follow with me and see the outcome for both. Look at the challenge, the comfort. 
Verse 4, let's begin. Will evildoers never learn? It's kind of like saying, can't they see who God really is? Can't they get their eyes open and see the reality of God in the world around them and in the Bible before them? Opposing God and his people will lead to well, what we see is inevitable ruin, which is what we get in verse 5. Look at that. It's frightening, isn't it? There they are, overwhelmed with dread. What fools to stand against God and his people. Yet they've been devouring them. Against God's people, devouring them like the Hindus, in, uh, the radical Hindus in, in India are at the moment. Devouring. But there is only one end. And that is they will literally tremble with fear. See, if you cause God's people to tremble with fear, you, in the end, ultimately will tremble before God himself. You'll be consumed with fear. Why? Verse 5. For God is present in the company of the righteous. God stands with his people. And they will be victorious. Throughout history, that has been seen again and again. You can read throughout the Bible. God has worked through his weak and frail people at times to defeat the great armies of, of opposition. You think of the Philistines with David and the Babylonians and so on. Uh, and that can be true today. And we must pray that that, that may be true for the people in India, the Christians, the faithful Christians in India today. But ultimately, this will be seen as God comes again to establish his rule over this world. And on that day, when Jesus returns, people who oppose God will be overwhelmed, it's saying here, with dread. Literally, it's, a, it's kind of play almost, it's saying they will be fearing a fear. It is that awful. And on that day, God will show himself to be the enthroned king. And people will finally realise what they have done in denying him. And they will be at this moment, at that moment, the last moment of time, when it's just too late that men like Dawkins and Hitchens, if they continue to deny God, supremely intelligent men, at that final moment, they will have their face in their hands and they will weep with utter dread, with fear and trembling. The very people that they have sought to undermine and harangue with their razor wit and their ruthless logic These people, God's people, who may sometimes feel incredibly weak and frail in comparison to these great intelligent men, will be stood beside God. God will be present amongst his people. I remember playing um, one game of rugby. I I say one game of rugby whilst I was at university. I was a weak, frail hockey player in comparison. I lived with a first-team rugby player, um, well, actually a couple of them, on Wednesday, the, the, the lower team, the second, third, fourth, fifth, they all gone away um, to play a game. And uh, the first team were left at home. Just before lunch, a few players rang up the vice-captain who I live with and said, we can't play, we've had a few too many beers, I'll, I'll leave you to work out the rest. And uh, my housemate knew that I didn't have a hockey match that Wednesday. And he turned to me and said, Andy, you're playing. First team rugby game at university. Now I remember running out onto that pitch thinking I was about to die. <clears throat> Quite literally. As I looked at the opposition against me, I thought, yes, I'm about five stone lighter, 
um, I have no muscle in comparison to those people, I'm about to snap into. But then I looked at the backs that I was kind of positioned beside. Two of them play for England and one of them play for Wales. I was truly rubbish. I don't say this to big me myself up at all. I was awful that day, I have to say. But I was being protected by some of the monsters of the game. It, it frightened me to play um, in, against those people. But I guess it was more frightening for the opposition to see these such amazing international players facing them. But you see, if you're in the team, it's a great comfort to know that you've got these giants beside you. A great, great comfort. And I have to say, if we are Christians, then we are in the company of the giant of life himself, namely God. God, he is present amongst us. Yes, now by his spirit in our hearts, and one day we'll be present ultimately, and he will bring destruction on anyone who opposes him and his people. Verse 6 shows a distinction again. We're very close to finishing here. Those who deny God continue to persecute his people. We see that there. But comfort is found in the refuge that God provides. And let's get this clear, guys, because there's some rubbish teaching going around at at the moment in London. It's not to say that he won't bring an... No, it's not to say that he will bring an end to suffering and persecution. Because look, still in the present tense in verse 4, they're being devoured. They're being persecuted and frustrated in verse 6. But in God's refuge, we're not alone in this hostile world. In the midst of all this, God comforts and strengthens his people. And the same is true for us today as Christians. As we face hostility from our enemies, from sin within, from Satan and schemes, and the whole world around us, we too must rest secure in the refuge that we know in God, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him alone, in our little final point, God's people are saved and restored. I'd love us to be able to sing this last verse. I don't know a tune to it, but think of it as a song, a joyful song. Look with me. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. See, a day is coming, guys, when this will be true, fully and finally. When all will be fulfilled. And we have to say, what a day. What an amazing day this will be. Now, life may throw at us a number of challenges. And I know some of you are facing them right now. Living as a Christian in this country will not get easier. Our desire to keep going must remain. To stay loyal to God will be challenged all the more. We might feel like we're being devoured at times, but as David prays in hope, oh, that salvation will come. And he prays, why? Because he trusts in the promises of God. That we will be restored and know the fortunes of eternal glory. Not fortunes now, we're not promised that at all. But fortunes in the life to come. If you are here and you're not a Christian, then I guess Psalm 14 begins with that reality. Leads to a warning, doesn't it? That you will face ruin.
But I think it ends with a devastating missed opportunity of eternal joy. But what if you're a Christian here today that you've put your trust in Jesus Christ? Well, I think Psalm 14 similarly begins with a reality, doesn't it? It's what we once were. But it leads to comfort, probably in the midst of hardship and suffering. But look how it finishes. With utter, brilliant, glorious joy in the hope of restoration in eternity. So which group are you in? You want to make sure you know. Are you a fool before God? As in the category we saw in verse 1. Or are you a fool for God? That is utterly devoted to your Saviour and King. Let's pray. Just a moment of quiet to to ponder, just to look down at those words that we've been um, looking at. salvation for Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad Heavenly Father we do want to praise you and thank you that salvation for God's people has come out of the new Jerusalem with the great King Jesus and we know at that point you will restore our fortunes and bring us to an eternal fortune in glory Lord, uh, when we think of those perhaps in India at the moment, your faithful people who are being shot and burnt and utterly um, devoured, Lord, we do pray that they would cling to words like this. Lord, our life seems so simple and so easy in comparison. Help them to know that they are being faithful if they cling to you that they are being wise if they know the joy and the hope of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as with the final words of this psalm, help us to rejoice and be glad. Supremely in Jesus. Amen.